0: Find me Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm also a daughter who has felt the pain, the disconnection, the exhaustion when caring for a loved one with dementia. You see, my mom had dementia for 30 years. Luckily, I was um, blessed enough to find the joy, the love, and the lessons that come along with that journey, and I wouldn't have traded it for anything. So that's really why I created Alzheimer's Speaks, was to help others Connect to services, products, and tools, and stories, stories that you can relate to and that can give you hope and help you through this journey um, by learning lessons that many of us have learned along the way. And I also need to just give a shout out to our, our followers Your likes, your clicks, your shares, they're immeasurable, and they have spread the word of our resource, and I just want to thank you all so much, and again, invite you to maybe one day be a guest on the show. All you have to do is reach out to me, and you can contact me through alzheimerspeaks.com. There's a big contact button. That's our, our main website there. Um, so please, please feel free to do that. Now, before we get into our conversation today, which is going to be really interesting, it's about kind of caring and coping as a working daughter. And we have uh, Liz O'Donnell with us, who is the author of her new book. Uh, that we're going to be speaking about. But before I introduce her, I just want to give a shout out to a couple of, I think, really important things that are going on. One is the Traveling with Dementia Airport Survey. It's something that a group I'm participating with here in Roseville, Minnesota, and the University of uh, Minnesota have put together. And it's a, a survey that can be used internationally, but we're really trying to gather data on airport travel for people living with dementia and their travel companions. You can find that, again, right uh, on on our homepage at alzheimerspeaks.com. There are also two, a couple other resources on the homepage that I want to point out to you. One is a webinar series that Jennifer Fitzpatrick is doing on her book called Cruising Through Caregiving. And she still has a couple more sessions left on that. And then the the third thing that I want to uh, shout out to is Stall Catchers, which is a game where you can actually play a game and analyze real-life Alzheimer's data. And you're making an incredible difference by playing this game. And I would really urge you to check that out. It's simple and easy to do. So let's go ahead and get started today, and let me introduce you uh, to Liz, so that we can have this this uh, conversation on caring and coping as a working daughter. Liz O'Donnell is the founder of Working Daughter, which is a community for women balancing elder care, career, and more. She's an award-winning writer and recently published her second book, Working Daughter, A Guide to Caring for Your Aging Parents While Earning a Living. Isn't that what we all seem to fall into that, that boat so often, trying to find that balance? Liz is a former family caregiver and a recognized expert on working while caregiving, and she has written on this topic for many outlets like the Atlantic uh, Forbes, Time, um, and PBS, and even Next Avenue. So welcome to the show today, Liz. I, I'm thrilled to have you with us. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so happy you call attention to this topic. Thank you. Well, it's I think it's one so many people are balancing. I know when I was caring for um, basically both my mom and dad, I was that working woman um trying to trying to figure out you know how do i raise my own family keep my career care for my parents and and do it all at a high level and there's a lot of a uh, guilt and stress and exhaustion i think that can That can wrap and and confuse us there So um, before we get started uh, Talking about the book I always like to just have you Tell our audience If you've been personally touched By a family member Or somebody within your circle of friends Who's living with dementia
1: Yes, my father had um, dementia He passed away Two years ago actually Just about two years ago And um, for a long time You know, it was Early stage and you know just minor minor things and then when it kicked in it was one of the toughest things that um, I experienced was watching him you know go through that disease.
0: Mm-hmm. Can I ask what was what were maybe the top two things that were the most difficult for you in that experience?
1: Uh, well, my my father um, the disease. Um, displayed with aggression sometimes and he would be placed in adult psych wards that happened two different times and the care there wasn't care it was sort of maintenance right wait until the patient patient shifts and they can go back to their assisted living or the nursing home and my understanding now of the disease is that um, it you know every day can be different so you know, he might have had a good day, and then come in to reassess whether or not he could go home, and then he was having a bad day, and the cycle would start again, and I knew he was in the wrong place, and I fought, I turned into such a warrior. What I feel great about on the other side is that I loved so hard when he was sick, you know, to make sure that he was being taken care of, to get him back to the nursing home that I had found for him, where the staff was fantastic. They, um, you know, they embraced uh, their patients on the memory care units. They understood how to deal with dementia. And so uh, there were a lot of positives I took out of the experience. But to see somebody who, you know, my father, World War II, gener- you know, greatest generation, stubborn, independent, and to, you know, to see him losing the ability to do things he loved to do was hard. The great experience that I had, you talk about your mother's experience and that you were able to find some great lessons of love and joy in there. The one thing that I'm so, so grateful for was that I was able to shift from grieving the father that I had to loving the father that I had in the moment. And even though most visits as the disease progressed, he thought I was either his mother, his sister, or the woman woman who ran the place. Um, He did know that he knew me and that he liked me, and we were able to still have a fantastic relationship.
0: And it didn't matter
1: that he didn't know specifically who
0: I was. Well, that's. That's beautiful. I, yeah, I got to that spot too, and I, I kind of uh, tell people it's like an unconditional love you didn't know existed because it's almost at yeah. that, a spiritual level that you get to. It's just it's so peaceful and it's so calming. It's like why the heck didn't I find this sooner? Why didn't somebody tell me this even existed to look for it? You know, I yes. just uh, I was kind of <laughs> oblivious to it all, but. Once you're there, it's it's pretty pretty magnificent. Well, thank you for sharing sharing that with our audience. I think it's always helpful. Why don't you tell us why you decided to write the book, um, Working Daughter: A Guide to Caring for Your Aging Parents While Earning a Living? Well, I had
1: I had written a book about balancing
0: motherhood. I had a, my first book was called
1: Mogul Mom and Maid: The Balancing Act of the Modern Woman, and talked about the there's data that shows that women tend to do more housework and chores and childcare than men, regardless of, you know, whatever the marital arrangement is or who's working and who's not. And I had written a book about that. And just as that book came out, my parents started to need more and more. And I had this aha moment. It was a day that started at five. I answered some emails for work. I drove the hour and 15 minutes to where my parents lived to take my mother to the doctor she wasn't ready, had to push the appointment back. Then, you know, it's get the prescriptions, take her to lunch. My dad needed help with his computer, get back in the car, drive home, happened to drive over a big branch. So I'm on, at one point I'm on the side of the road trying to fix the car. Anyway, I, that night I was speaking to a group of young mothers about the challenges of balancing childcare and career. So a day that started at 5 ended about 11 o'clock that night. I'm finally driving home, and I thought, what about the you know, I was just talking about working mothers. What about the working daughters? Look how hard it is to balance all of this stuff, and everybody's talking about how to help mothers. Nobody is talking about how to help me, a working daughter. And that's when I became sort of obsessed with the topic. like, whoa, this is as challenging and challenging in different ways than motherhood. I need to talk to somebody. So I started to write what didn't exist for me, and then other people started to talk to me. And then you realize how much of a need there was for us all to be able to say, I'm going through this, too. This is normal. How do you manage? And it just went from there.
0: Oh, wow. That's that's really what happened to me with Alzheimer Speaks, too. I started as a blog not really knowing what would come of it, it was like, holy cow, what a shockeroo, you know, everybody's struggling <laughs> out there and nobody's connecting right. and, and you just, you're just kind of taken back and what a difference just having a conversation can make, you know, by writing a book or a radio show or a group meeting or, you know, whatever it is, it just, it makes such a powerful difference in people's lives that um, that we just, I don't know. I think we're so busy. We forget to slow down and say, hey, I can't be the only one going through this. There's got to be others. And we, we can learn so many beautiful things from one another. So thank you for taking the time and having the revelation to, to see that, the perception, and then to move forward with the kudos to you. Um, how can we better support a working daughter? And they always look like they have everything under control. I think so many people view them and go, wow, they're really doing good. You know, we seem to put on a good face. Um, and so how do we support them, or is it putting on that good face even part of the problem that we, <laughs> that we have? <laughs>
1: I think it is part of the problem, and yet I completely understand why we do it. And, you know, this comes up in the working daughter community all the time. There's a private Facebook group um, where working daughters, really tell their truth and lean on each other and one of the things that comes up is that people think we're okay and you know you you can't imagine how stressed out or lonely or whatever it might be and of course you know it's not all the time but you have your days um so i think the fact that we do try to cover it up or um you know get through the day as best we can people don't realize and that was one of the you know impetuses back to writing the book was i felt so alone going through this experience but you know, somebody in the next office or the next cube might be going through it too. You just don't see it. Um, But I understand why we do it. It is scary to, especially if you're talking about the working daughter, you know, who works outside the home. It is a scary proposition to say and let work know, hey, my personal life is impacting my ability to focus at work, to show up at work, to advance my career. You don't want to say that. And then um, risk you know, being passed over or being viewed on, you know, you hear about the mommy track. I mean, potentially there could be a daughter track, right? Well, we can't rely on Liz because she might get that call at any moment. So I think how can we better support working daughters? We can talk about it and we can normalize it. You know, the the data is pretty overwhelming that we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day for a whole host of reasons from immigration to just, the volume of care and training and pay, that we're going to see a shortage of professional paid caregivers. So that work is going to continue to fall to uh, adult children, right? Somebody is going to have to take care of our rapidly aging society, and it's looking like the data is showing that it's going to be adult uh, daughters and sons. And so we better normalize this at work. And so what is it that we're doing for working parents? And is there a parallel? Should we be having, um, you know, meetups at work where people can get together and talk about examples? Should we be looking at our culture? And do we still operate a business that is, you know, I need to see you, line of sight. If you're not in your chair and we're not all in the same room, then we can't work together. That's not the reality anymore. Can we shift the hours that people work? Um, It's really talking about what's going on with my employee base, where are they, and the continuum of care, because it is a continuum. I mean, look at you, 30 years. Um, And what is it that they best need? Not assuming that we know what they need, but asking them what they need.
0: Yeah, those are are really um, great insights. And I think, you know, one of the things that I love that you mentioned was you know, the, the numbers are going to rise, and this isn't mm-hmm. going away. We don't have enough people to care, so it is going to fall back to the family, and it's going to fall back to the family on multiple levels, not just the daughters, but the sons and the grandchildren even, and, and neighbors and friends. This is This is, you know, where we're at right now. And so we need to talk. We need to say this is a normal part of living life is supporting one another, and it shouldn't be looked down on, because anybody, you know, you can be sitting in a boardroom, anybody in that boardroom could get an emergency call. It could change their life in a second, and then there's no going back, and, you know, you shouldn't have to you shouldn't have to go back. We should be able to support people through this, and um, like you said, allow allow some more flexibility. But I I agree wholeheartedly that we have to we have to have the conversation. Nothing ever changes without a conversation, and that doesn't mean everyone's going to agree with it. Um, but you know that's how we come up with the best ideas, is to to see what are people's needs, and everybody's are going to be a little bit different, and you know it's not going to change overnight. But we can make little progress here and there by having the conversation, by igniting the fire, by making people aware of this issue. And, and to me, one of, the, one of the biggest issues with this is that there's almost a shame-blame thing going on. And not shame on you for caring for somebody because you know, no one would most people wouldn't be bold enough to say that, you know, right, but, right. but, it, but it's, it's kind of a blame thing. Oh, you didn't get this done because of that. You didn't get this done because of that. And it could have been something totally different where the team wasn't effective or somebody didn't give me my information, so I didn't get it done. It had nothing to do with me caring for a loved one, but that's the first thing that gets blamed. And, um, you know, once that, once the cat's kind of out of the box on that. And so I think there has to be some real good cautionary things in terms of how do we support healthy living? How do we let people be their whole self and be productive and not just, you know, their area of work? Because, you know, you can't, as much as we say we separate work and home life, it's it's pretty much impossible you know? Yeah, they're not because separate. You, you, they're not separate. But, but there's this belief that there should, you know, people should be able to, and, you know, put that smile on no matter how bad your day was at home and, and pretend. And then we get that whole separate wives thing going on. And then we wonder why people can't figure out when something's wrong with us, because we, we have learned <laughs> how to hide it so well. And, and, you know, and that's not healthy for anybody, because then we're, you know, as a daughter, we're thinking, why don't they know? And and they're thinking, what the heck? Something's wrong, but I I can't figure out what because they're getting mis- mixed messages, and then everyone's walking on eggshells. No one really wants to talk about it because by then, it's really almost in a crisis state. It seems like before it, you know, b- before answers really come forth, and then it's and then it's too late. There's there's so much damage I think done on both sides of the of the aisle on that. So I, I love the idea of being able to have support groups or even some elder care. I know some companies have talked about doing that like they do for, for day, daycare for children um, or assisting maybe with mobile devices so that somebody can check on somebody or, or have some breaks or something. I don't know. I, I, I love, I love that idea of spirit of conversation and, and seeing where it goes. Now, um working daughters i think often suffer from a ton of guilt how do you how do you dump that how do you deal with that cuz that's you know you i think when we stretch ourselves so far trying to be super mom super daughter super worker bee whatever you know we're not good at anything because we're you know we're so split and yet still trying to do it all how do we get over that guilt and, and still be the best we can be
1: yeah, the guilt um, in this community is amazing, and, and I get it. Um, it is There is never an end to the work or uh, the care, I should say. There's never an end to what needs to be done. So I understand where it stems from. We are, and I don't know that a lot of people realize this, how much caregivers do, right? We we help with the Assisted daily living, right? We help with bathing and dressing and food. We run errands. We sort medications. That's a big responsibility to make sure that you're giving the right doses. But what I don't think people understand is we're also, you know, changing colostomy bags and cleaning wounds. And I mean, it's surprising once you start to realize it or experience it yourself how much the caregiver does. Um, from medical tasks to financial tasks to sorting through legal tasks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So when you're so busy doing all of those things, you run out of time to then take care of your parents' social needs and we know isolation and loneliness is a big deal in the aging community or a big issue in the aging community and i so i understand where the guilt comes from i only have so many hours in a day i work full time i have children i have an elderly parent to care for i only have about four hours next saturday you know to go check on them and visit them if they need errands and i go over to their place and see that they need the fridge cleaned out or you know who knows what Or they want me to look at the mail they got that week and help them. Well, there goes that four hours, and I didn't have any time with them just to be their daughter or to play a game of cards or to say, hey, can I drive you over to see your friend? So the guilt comes from the fact that we wish we were doing more. We always want to be able to do more for our parents. I think the way you get over it is a couple of things. One is that guilt is misdirected. We should be angry at the lack of systems in place to support us and to support our aging society. It's not, we're the ones showing up, right? We're the ones showing up to help them. So we shouldn't be upset with ourselves that we can't do more than we already are. So I think it's a choice to miss or to redirect that guilt and to tell yourself you're showing up and to focus on what you're doing right versus what you're doing wrong. And that's the other thing. I think it's a choice not to feel guilty it's it's active work to say hey i'm not going to go to bed tonight thinking about all the things i did wrong i'm going to go to bed tonight thinking of all the things i did right i showed up i did the errands i cared i'm concerned etc etc and to tell yourself i will never feel bad for putting my family first and i'll never feel bad for earning a living because that's the other thing there's no shame in the fact that we all need to work and women are projected to live longer, and aging costs money. And so we want to continue to put money in our bank accounts so that we are set up for our retirement. And so never feel guilty that, hey, I'm not at mom's house because I'm at work. And likewise, I'm never going to feel guilty leaving work because mom needs me. And that's a choice every day. But it's, it takes it takes mental training.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, how do you get that mental training? I mean, when you're so exhausted anyways i know for me there were times i know i wasn't even thinking straight because it was i was just (laughs) so exhausted from you know feeling guilty and feeling like i wasn't the best me or the best daughter and you know that whole nine yards so how do you how do you learn to make that shift well I think
1: a couple things. One is to find a community, and that's why you know you emphasize this, and I emphasize this, the conversation is so important. When we start to talk about caregiving, then we start to normalize caregiving. When we put a name on things, then we can identify them and find others who are caregivers. And I think if we have a support group, and whether that's you join an online community like working daughter, you join an in-person, support group at, you know, the local senior center or your church or wherever it might be to find other people who can be kinder to you than you're being to yourself. It's funny, I see this all the time in the Facebook community as well, in the working daughter group. Somebody says, oh, you know, I just lost my temper or I should have gone to visit dad this Saturday, but I just couldn't get off the couch. I needed to rest. I'm a terrible person, you know, and then all the other women in the community jump in there and say, no, you're not. Self-care is important. You need to take a break. You're doing all these things well. And then two days later, they're the ones saying the same thing about themselves and the person who felt (laughs) guilty the day before, right? Because you are so much more generous to other people in your thought process than you are to yourself. So I think if you're in a support group, whether that's online, whatever it might be, listening to a show like this, then you say, oh, yeah, you're right. Why am I so hard on myself? I should be good to myself. And then I, I try to remind people every day at the end of their day to look in the mirror and thank themselves. And people think I'm crazy at first, but sometimes no one's thanking you. And you need to know that you're doing caregiving because it's who you want to be, not because you're expecting anyone to feel good about it or, you know, thank you for it. And So I think if we just make a bedtime practice of looking in the mirror and saying, you rock, Laurie. You know, you showed up today, and I'm going to go to bed with that as my last thought, as opposed to tomorrow's to-do list or the thing I didn't get to today. Um, you know, build it into your bedtime routine or first thing in your morning routine, whatever works for you.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that is really smart, kind of those intentions. And and you're you're so right when you said the women will come and say no no you did great and then but they do it to themselves you know it's so much easier to lift someone else up than it is yourself because you know I think I think we're our own worst critic and then we have our inner critic who even trumps us you know telling us what a schmuck we are and we can do better and sometimes (laughs) sometimes you just you got to listen to that inner critic and say heard ya hit the road Jack I did the best I could with the energy and the time that I had and, you know, maybe I can do better next time I will try, but that's all I had in me and I gave it all, you know, and, and it's not healthy to give it all away. We've got to be able to, you know, find that balance and, and be able to, to get refilled. I know that was one of my biggest mistakes was I was giving so much to everybody else. I, my soul got empty you know and I mm-hmm. and, and then you just feel lost and, and even more exhausted. So you've got to find those things that that fill you because then you can be a better care partner, um, a better worker be whatever whatever role you're in you will you will be more whole with that and I think that that's that's absolutely a critical piece. Um, why is it and, and what can be done to kind of elevate? Our, our ability to say Job well done You know sleep well tonight You, you did good How how uh, You know I know you mentioned some groups And looking yourself in the mirror Are there, are there any other suggestions That you have for people on that
1: um, I, I'm i a big believer in Gratitude practices And a few years ago before I went through Caregiving I probably would have rolled my eyes If somebody was like oh I you know I live and die by my gratitude practice, but to the point you were just making about um, when you give and give and give, and then you start to, you know, feel depleted or, you know, you don't remember who you were or what brought you joy. um, I think it's important to remember that when we get to that point and I got to that point so many times, do not get me wrong. I got to that point so many times I became awful to everybody around me. Um, I think the polite Word I'm looking for is I got really cranky, but you know there's a less polite word that I would <laughs> myself. When, um, you know when I was just doing everything I thought I should be doing for other people and go 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 and feeling kind of victimized by, by it, I was cranky to my mother, I was cranky to my husband, I was cranky to my kids, I, you know, and I was I didn't even like me, you know. Um, so by sort of taking a step back and realizing I wasn't really helping anybody then that started to help and when i was in that really sort of victimized cranky 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 place i just said to myself like this is uncomfortable how do i snap out of this and i started simply by setting the timer on my iphone to 1 minute and forcing myself every morning morning to say for 1 minute list everything that you're grateful for and sometimes it was the fact that i woke up alive right another you know or it was coffee or it was my favorite color red or it was sh- Having you on blogs, great. Right? And then sometimes it was like, oh, you know, my job is going well, or I have healthy kids, you know. So it could get deep, or it could get really simple, like a new pair of shoes. But to again, it was training and forcing myself to go. Okay, there are good things in your life. There's always something good. Um, you're stuck at the doctor's office and you're waiting. And for me, you know, I hate to be kept waiting, and I tend to be punctual and I'll never understand why doctors run late. And I could get myself so worked up, you know, the pulse quickens and the tension around my heart. And then I just, I couldn't continue to live that way. So I'd say to myself, okay, what's good in this moment? What's good in this moment is I can just sit and relax and talk to dad in this waiting room. I don't have time to go back and sit with him in his apartment. So use the time now and always training myself to find something good and to be thankful for something. Like I said, at one point I thought that was spiritual, goofy, I was way too practical, and then at some point it became necessary.
0: Oh, I I can so relate to that because I was there too. It was (laughs) like, "Eh, that's a little woo-woo-y, you know, of course life is good, but I don't have to say it all the time. I don't have to think about it. Well, why the heck don't you? That's a much better place to be than whining all the time or feeling exhausted and overwhelmed i mean it, it when when you when you are conscious about looking for the good you'll find it but when you're conscious about everything being overwhelming and you know you turn into that Debbie downer that none of us want to be and so it, there's huge value in terms of finding those small precious things if it's just you know what i didn't get an emergency call or i didn't get a repetitive call or it's just quiet. <laughs> I like yeah. the quiet, you know, because yeah. you you're going so much, and so I, I think um, it really helps put into perspective what is important in life and what do you want more out of. And the more the more you look for it, the more you'll find of that too. And for me, it helps it helped me realize I was putting. Oh, kind of a hammer to my own head with uh with mm. time frames that didn't really need to hold true, but they were adding pressure to my life, and I'm like, Well, dang dog, you set the timeline you know and <laughs> I realized it really didn't have to be that strict, you know, or I didn't really it really wasn't a need it was it was something that maybe I thought was a need, but to them it wasn't you know and really learning to yeah. prioritize okay if i'm caring for them this isn't about my list this is about what's important to them and i think that mm. alone is a huge shift too yeah in terms of yeah. the the conversation and and how you approach things and um learning to be a little bit more accepting of things that might not be up to your standard but right you know there's they're survivable. I, I think of when I was younger, they used to call me uh, the white tornado because I cleaned like a crazy woman. <laughs> I, and not so much anymore, you know? <laughs> and, right. Um, well, it's, it's, it's going to be there tomorrow. Yeah. And it, it's like, it's, it's just not as important to me. Because um, some, some of the stuff I think we do, we do out of um, oh we do it because We're worried what other people will say if we don't meet their standards. So not only is it our parents' standards and our standards, now it's our friends' and family and society's standards. And we we have these all ticked up, and we don't even, I think, consciously know that we're doing it. But then when you step back and go, holy crap, holy, I don't need to. This is not important to them. It's not important to me. This is our relationship I have a right to stand up and fight for our relationship, not what everybody else thinks it should be, um, is it makes a huge, huge difference. What are some of the biggest challenges you see with dementia caregivers? You know, the things that they face, because they're in some ways different a lot, but again, a lot of similarities to caring for, I don't care if it's if it's kids or somebody with cancer, you know, um, caring can be caring. But there are some, some definite differences, I think, with dementia as well. So what are what are some of those challenges that you see that are a little bit different with dementia?
1: I The biggest challenge I see is lack of education and understanding. I, I know in my case, and I see this with the working daughters I talk to on a daily basis, your parent is diagnosed and you're sent home. And maybe you're put on, maybe your parents put on, what was it Aricep or whatever that um, drug is that's supposed to slow the memory loss. But that's it. It's gone. Bye-bye. You're at home. And, you know, I didn't know that there were stages of progression. I didn't know what to do when my father fixated on, he, he was constantly asking me where some car was. I didn't know what car he was talking about. You know, I I made it up as I went along. Um, and tried to ask myself, what's the most compassionate answer here? And I'd say, I'll take care of the car, you know, and he would move on, as opposed to, Dad, you haven't driven a car in five years. What's your problem, right? Um, There was no training. And so that, to me, is the biggest challenge. There are a few voices out there, and thank God for them, including you, that are helping people understand dementia. The other thing, and again, back to the voices and why I think conversation is so important and your show is so important, is there's still a stigma. You know, it was at first embarrassing to admit that my dad was in a psych ward. And then I was like, what the heck? Why am I upset if my spouse had cancer? And he did. And he needed to go to the hospital for some extra fluids after his chemo treatment. There was no shame in that. He needed some extra fluids, But if my dad's disease, you know, showed up in an aggressive way and they put him in the hospital, well, that was the disease, you know, so what? It was just another symptom. And so I think there's a stigma because the behaviors can feel embarrassing or why do they repeat themselves or why do they, you know, move the fork when we go out to a restaurant a certain way or, you know, why are they talking about something that isn't a reality for the rest of us? Well, so what? It's a disease.
0: Yeah. Well, and one of the things too, I have had so many people deal with the, you know, the behaviors and have their loved one go into a geriatric psych, and that's because staff are trained. Companies right. aren't able. To deal with it, so it's it's not right. even just us, and I think sometimes we think it's just us, but it's it's Mm-mm. the medical professionals who should be referring us to resources. And I mean, people are lucky if they get a, a number to the Alzheimer's Association or the Alzheimer's Foundation. Um, you know, I didn't even know either of them existed back in the day. I had no idea how many resources there were available to us, and had to find it on my own. And you know, if that shouldn't be happening. Um, People should be uh, given a resource and, um, you know, or a coach, um, someone who can really stand by them and help. And and that devastation of the the geriatric psych has so many levels of devastation from the person who's diagnosed to the family and friends going, Mm -hmm. they they were never like this before, you know, trying to understand it, trying to, you know, trying to support them. And yet there's, there's a stigma like there is with any kind of mental illness, you know, where there's this kind of shaming thing. Well, they should know better. You know, they shouldn't be doing that. And it's like, it doesn't work like that. That portion of the brain's gone, you know, it's been eaten up by little gremlins. And, um, and so I think, I I think you're right. I think education on, on multiple levels is, is huge. And, and, again, being able to allow people a place to talk openly and get support, um, I think one of the, one, you know, and there's a lot of different support groups out there. Um, one of my favorites is, like, the Memory Cafe, where the person with dementia and the okay. care partner all come together. Because I don't know if, if your family went through this, but I know mine did, where family and friends kind of, they inched away. And then it got it, the world got really small, and so being able to have that new circle of of peer um, companions is is really nice. Um, others that that really know the walk you're going through, um, or the Facebook pages like yours, where people can really have honest conversations that they you know, and they tell I mean they tell stories in those groups they've never told a soul before, right, and it, right. You know, so that that kind of being anonymous, yet there are these deep friendships that that um, come out of these groups and deep support because people truly, truly understand. What are some of the the biggest challenges you see um, the working caregiver, you know, themselves facing?
1: Well, I think if we can just tie back to the last question for a second, I think that's another challenge around dementia is because of the lack of education and because uh, many caregivers don't know what the path forward is going to look like, they can't adequately prepare their lives and set up their lives, you know, for the progression of dementia. So that's a challenge, I think. Um, and now I forget what the question was because I went back to the last one.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. No, what some of the, the biggest challenges are for the working caregiver? What are you know what are the biggest ones they're facing um, working right now?
1: Yeah, I think the unpredictability of elder care. Um, a lot of people put child care and elder care together as sort of, you know, we look at the issues the same way. And while there are many, many similarities in what you were talking about, so eloquently a few minutes ago about the fact that you know workers do have lives and we need to make space for that but at the, but we can't treat it all with a blanket approach because the thing about elder care is you never know when that call might come you never know when a disease might progress um, so it's similar but quite different i think also from a child care perspective In most cases, that's a very joyful experience. There might be a lot of stress around balancing care and work. There might be a lot of stress around the tasks that you do, but it's kind of steeped in joy and hope, and this is the future. In elder care, you've got these workers who are caring for somebody, and I think there are huge gains to caring for somebody, but it's challenging as you go through it. And you're facing end of life. And so we've got these caregivers coming to work who are not only um, doing a second or a third job at home, not only thinking about the huge task list that they have and hoping that they can make it through the meeting without getting a call and you know not be the flake at work again who has to leave early or gets the emergency phone call, but they're also potentially grieving because, as I'm sure you know after your experience, Um, And it's not something I understood until my parents got sick. Grieving starts a heck of a long time before your parent actually passes away. Every time they exhibit, you know, some characteristic or change from what they used to be able to do, whether they're no longer driving or they're no longer buying you a birthday present. It's not the birthday present you miss. It's the fact that your mom isn't going to celebrate your birthday the same way your mom has changed and with dementia you know there's so much grieving of the person who was even if you're able to accept the person who is so these people are coming to work with grief and so um back to the more we talk about it the more we challenge workplaces to understand that every single employee who works walks through that door is on some continuum of care whether they are parenting adult childing or whatever the word might be right they have spouses to take care of
0: or they're concerned about their elderly neighbor
1: we all have life and it comes through the work
0: door with us every day yeah that's that's very true or they might be having health issues themselves because a lot of times that comes into play you know with all that all the stress and um, again not not being in balance, I know for myself, all of a sudden, I ended up with um acid reflux and asthma, and then after after my journey was over, poof, they went away, you know
1: wow <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and so that was kind of kind of bizarre, and I had no idea that that was really related until later on when I was doing more investigative you know stuff, and they're like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty common, pretty common mm-hmm. for different health issues to to pop up so and you know again none of us is per is the perfect person at work at home when we're caring for somebody but I think we we take on this role and we take it so seriously and we we strive for perfection that really doesn't even exist and no room for perfection yeah no room yeah yeah especially and no need yeah. When and, and in today's world we're moving so fast. Everything really is about spontaneity and being quick on your feet, you know, really? and trying trying to avoid a disaster more so than anything. But that but that right. doesn't mean it's gonna get done perfectly. It's just not gonna be as bad as it could be. You know, in a yeah. in a lot of in a lot of ways. And so it's kind of funny how our how our psyche um you know, how it's been pounded into us that we should do this alone and we should do it perfectly yeah. and we shouldn't complain and we shouldn't ask for help. Um, because to me, I guess I've learned we should probably do the opposite of all those things. You know, we should ask for help. We we should, you know, um, lean on others. We shouldn't try to do it all. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's a very, very interesting state. It'll be interesting to see how, Companies pursue this, yeah, because it does and it's going to continue to affect um, their production rate. And if they don't find a way to be able to support people on this, um, I think it's going to have a big 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 impact um, on them sooner or later. It's just a matter it's just a matter of time if it hasn't hit already. Um, right. you know who who knows maybe a lot of our turnover has to do with some of this stuff already which so many companies are, are worried about um, in dealing with, you know, not, not being able to maintain staff. Maybe some of it has to do with how they're treated or not treated, you know. Yeah,
1: you I, their I think person. people view women or whoever leaving the workforce as a choice. They made a choice to, um, you know, go and take care of their family. And, yes, in, the, in, in some level they did. But it was almost a false choice. They didn't see a way to make both work. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, if the companies are concerned about the, you know, huge millions of dollars in turnover and retraining and, you know, retention problems, then then they would see that it is well worth the investment to look at why these people are leaving and look at what they didn't feel they had to be able to stay.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and don't you think? Um, and this is a little bit off topic, but but yet not. I think a lot more men are starting to step into this role too. Um, I know I've seen that much more um, from from husbands to to sons, uh, because maybe there isn't anybody else that's willing to. Well, yeah, to.
1: yeah. I think a couple of things are happening. Maybe there isn't anybody else. You know, People are having fewer children, so there are fewer siblings and children to rely on to do the caregiving. I think it has to do with how rapidly our society is aging, so it's sort of an all-hands-on deck. I also think men are now starting to get, and I'm widely generalizing, but want to be more hands-on. They don't want to be the 1950s company man who went to work, came home, had his martini waiting, and wasn't hands-on. They, they want to be a part of family life. And so I think all of those factors, the split of caregivers is actually 60% women, 40% men. I happen to write for women and um, look at the issues that impact women, but in no means in writing the book Working Daughters, starting the Working Daughter Community, do I want to imply that men aren't doing this as well, because the 60-40 split isn't that, isn't that significant. And also uh, millennials, 25% mm-hmm. of the care, family caregivers are millennials, so it's starting to happen at a much younger age. And that makes me hopeful that as more people in the workplace are going through this experience, then businesses and society hopefully is going to start to say, Hey, we've got a solve for everybody.
0: Mm -hmm. What about, you know, one, one category we haven't talked about, but I I hear this a lot is the daughter-in-law stepping in. Um, and being the primary uh care care partner for for the family um maybe maybe there's not a daughter in in the circle or maybe that those daughters are out of town and then all of a sudden it's the it's the daughter-in-law who's kind of the primary and I've heard stories of that and then they're like everything is going smooth until a point and then all of a sudden everything gets pulled back and you know, no one really knows what's going on or they think they're not. And, and I, I mean, it can get kind of toxic fairly quickly if there's really not good communication. Have you, have you run across much of that where it's not an immediate family member, but a, but a daughter-in-law who might be working and then also um, being kind of the primary care coordinator for everything? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And all of the issues you raised do come up in our community. Um, you know, fairly frequently, I think it speaks to the fact that we can't assume that one person's career is less important than another, or we can't assume that based on gender, people are, you know, um, predispositioned to be the caregiver. Ideally, you know, it has to be a family conversation, and it has to make sense for you know, all of the members of the family. I say ideally and I sort of throw an asterisk up there as I'm speaking because one of the things in writing my book that was really important to me and in starting the community was that it wasn't written for the Leave it to Beaver perfect family because at the time I was looking for help online, I found that a lot of the literature was, you know, just sit down and have a family meeting and hash it out. Well, (laughs) not in my family, you know, (laughs) Um, you know you know, your quick tempers rise quickly or I tend to be bossy or, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's never how it plays out. So, but, but the point I'm trying to make is we can't default to the fact that caregiving is woman's work. Um, Mm -hmm. It may be the woman in the family who does step up or maybe the woman in the family who makes sense, but it can't be the default. The default has to be, you know, who is best suited to do the kind of work that needs to be done, whose life is in the best position to be able to make space for that And don't forget, the person who is getting the care might have an opinion about who they want doing those tasks and being involved in their life. So, you know, it's different than child care. It's not like, hey, two-year-old, you're going, you know, here's your babysitter for the day. This is helping somebody navigate a really interesting time and challenging time in their life. And assuming,
0: you know, no cognitive decline, they should have a say in that. Definitely, definitely. I think that that's a a real important difference. I think also these these family conversations. Are, you know, it's so easy just to say get everybody around the table. But you know, <laughs> most most families, in my opinion, are dysfunctional. I've met a handful of people that go, oh, we haven't had that. I'm like, count your blessings, because most people go through right. this. You know, and right. and in my own family, I saw myself as being organized. You know, just real organized. My brother saw me as control freaks little different in perception and <laughs> how, how things went down and I wish we would have had that conversation before my dad died instead of afterwards mm-hmm. because you know we we got to some the meat of some things and that you know and I said I'll take some of the responsibility but I'm not going to take it all because you yeah. could have had this conversation with me sooner so yeah you know in a lot of ways it's a it's an easy excuse I think the other thing that can come in and I've seen this with uh, the in-law situation um, is all of a sudden they're they're being the the siblings are being judged for not stepping in and then an in-law is stepping up and that and it's almost a pride issue um, of where of where the change is is coming from where it's being forced it isn't somebody has the time now or wants to do it but there's some outside factors a lot of times I've seen and again not all the time coming into play with uh, with kind of trying to change the baton or judge the work that someone else is doing it wasn't even from the immediate family um, initially but it was it was almost fed to them and I found that bad. yeah that's very interesting too and I think we have to as individuals we have to um, be supportive in people's lives and again if we're going to truly be supportive that's not judging their choices
1: yeah there's no one right way to do any of this
0: right Mm -hmm. and so
1: the way your sister or your sister-in-law your brother-in-law might be doing it might not be the way you would do it but is it good enough And is it okay with the person, you know, who's receiving the care? And then, you know, how can I help as opposed to, you know, I wouldn't do it that way or let me take it now because continuity can be important. Um, But it's also, I think, if you are the primary caregiver and, you know, this, I'll be working on this for the rest of my life, but the caregiver who might be, or the sibling who might be long distance, they might come in with fresh eyes and see something you didn't see because you're living it. And so Mm -hmm. if you can pause, and again, I'll I'll be working on this forever, but if you can pause and say, they're not criticizing me, they're pointing out something that I'm incapable of seeing because I'm too involved. You know, it makes space for that
0: opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Easier said than done, but. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're just so used to people judging us, you know, we have that perception. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're ready to kind of be on that, that attack mode instead of really being open-minded and, Kind of for the the better good. Someone's got an alternative motive, you know, for what right, they're saying right, or or how right. they're saying it or why didn't they say it sooner before this went into play because they didn't see it either, you know. It, sometimes it can be really innocent stuff, and and I think with with texts and emails it can complicate things too because now you're not hearing the tone of voice and you know if people can video even video conference and really be able to see the nonverbals of what's What's going on with those words, um, I think, can make a huge, huge difference as well. Well, Liz, this is I really just... Dis- oh, oh, go
1: ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think I wrote in the book, be prepared to dust off the family dysfunction, because you know, you're, all of a sudden, your inner seven-year-old comes out, right, with your sister, and you're like, she's looking at me. <laughs> just, yep. You know, it's such, a, it's such a vulnerable
0: and important
1: time of life, and so you, you tend to sort of sink back into
0: those roles. So just be prepared for that. Yeah, that's a a really good good point. And a lot of times those roles, they just don't go away in some families. They're just embedded there for life. You know, you were the baby of the family. You're always going to be the baby of the family, even though you make three times the money and have a bigger job and house or whatever, you're still the baby of the family in (laughs) what it is. You know, you might be... The attorney, but they're still going to get a different elder law attorney. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, it's, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing, and it, and I think you know one of the things we have to do with life in general is just really use that phrase. And I know my my folks used it a lot growing up was pick your battles. And I don't think we yeah. pick our battles. I think we just go to battle these days.
1: And we, we yeah. say
0: things without thinking them through sometimes on how they could be perceived. And, and um, you know, this will be a journey in terms of uh, learning to, I think, communicate better, to care better, and to, to love at a deeper deeper level and um, and help you prioritize what's really important in your life. And nobody can make that decision but you. You know, with that. So, thank you so much, Liz, for this conversation. I this hour just blew by so fast. It just um, it always does, and I'm not not surprised. Again, uh, Liz uh, O'Donnell's book is the work or working daughter. A Guide to Caring for Your Aging Parents While Earning a Living. And you can reach her by going to WorkingDaughter.com. That's WorkingDaughter.com. And um, right now the the book is just kind of in pre-launch. So when are you looking at that actually launching, Liz? Um, August 8th, so very soon. Okay, yeah, that's just right around the corner. And you can pre-order your book, so it'll be hot off the press um any Any last words of wisdom? we've got a couple of minutes left so yeah, there's one thing I'd like to point
1: out. I talked about um you know the choice of shifting your attitude and remembering what you're grateful for and remembering to thank yourself i don't and i I do believe that, and I think it's very important, but I don't want anyone listening to think that I expect us all to go through caregiving like Pollyanna, like this is all wonderful and good. It is hard. And personally, I'm also – as much as I'm a fan of setting that timer to have a gratitude moment, I also sometimes set the timer and throw myself the biggest pity party in the world, you know, complete with double-stuffed Oreos and a glass of wine. I think it's okay (laughs) to sometimes say, this completely sucks, and I'm going to feel sorry for myself and watch Netflix for two hours. I think the key, though, is to set a timer on the pity party as well and then say, okay, you deserve that, so what now, and get up and go. Yeah. Yeah,
0: good good advice. I remember going down in my basement after everybody had left the house and just screaming at the top of my lungs. I didn't want the neighbors or anyone in the family to know that I was just so frustrated and exhausted and just sat, mm-hmm. sat down and, and cried, screamed and yelled. And then I was like, okay. I can, I can move on now. I got that out of my yep. system. <laughs> yep. Okay. Now I've got to go call, you know, the the phone company or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and all of the emotions that you had prior to getting into a caring situation, you know, you're still going to have all of those emotions. You know, they might, they might peak and valley a little bit more. Mm. Um. But, but you're still going to be exposed to them. You're still going to feel them all. So you still have to manage them and um you know and it's okay to like you said have those pity parties or screaming you know matches by yourself or yelling at god i know i've done that a few times too um you know just as long as no one else is getting hurt and and that you don't yeah. stay in that spot you, don't stay there. Um, yeah. you know you know it's a phase <laughs> it's a phase um emotions are fluid they're meant to be fluid so you're not going to be high all the time and and happy, and you're not going to be sad and depressed all the time either, you know. So just keep keep flushing those uh, emotions through. And again, I, I love that tip of of having some type of gratitude practice. And I think writing them down is is extremely powerful. And that that one minute talk before you go to bed, I did good. Mm-hmm. You know, I did good. I, yeah. Because so many times we don't know those. Well, again, thank you again. People can go to WorkingDaughter.com. Um, prior to wrapping up, I just want to shout out and let people know if they're looking for more resources, please visit AlzheimerSpeaks.com. We have tons of things on there from our dementia chats, interviews to memory cafes, and, and so much more, becoming dementia friendly. Um, there is also a new survey. Being put out by the A List, and I would recommend that you check that out. If you go to our our blog, you will find that. So just scroll down; it's listed on any of our posts, along with the link to Memory Cafe Directory, which is just memorycafedirectory.com. Have a great week, everyone. Bye now.